Our first um, passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is Genesis chapter 3. And if you are using one of the Bibles we provide, you will find that on page 2, I believe. And if you are using a children's Bible, you'll find that on page 4. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is the word of the Lord. Our next scripture is taken from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. You'll find that on page 981 in the Bibles we provide. And for the children, it'll be on page 290. Philippians, chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their mind set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. And this morning we are continuing our series, the book of Acts. And we're in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. And as we turn there, I'm going to invite you to the same thing that I try to invite you to every time I'm up here during this series, is to remember and to really believe that the same power that we're reading about here in the book of Acts, is this is the same power that's at work today in the world and in the lives of God's people. The Holy Spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He is still doing mighty works. This is not some chapter of of history that's trapped in time. This is the work of God throughout all of human history. And so let's see what he has to say to us today, starting verse four. Now, those who were scattered about went preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, 
this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. So one issue when you're going through the book of Acts is that there's a lot of stuff that, that we encounter that is very foreign to us when we first see it. And so thankfully today, we don't have to deal with that because we all know what it's like to be amazed by the town magician. Maybe there is a town magician. In the first service, I said that and nobody laughed. And I thought, is there a town magician? Um, but this week, David Blaine, if you know David Blaine, he did come to town on Thursday night and he did some, some amazing things, I'm sure. Um, but what's, what's really interesting about this passage and, and every passage in God's word is no matter how separated we feel at the outset, this is so applicable to us. And, and we read about a different magician, a uh, very different kind of magician. David Blaine is an illusionist, um, but this, this man, Simon, was, was practicing some kind of dark arts and having some kind of demonic power to influence and amaze the people of this town. And then all of a sudden, Philip shows up with the gospel, and he sees the power of gospel at work, and he's amazed and it says that he believes and he's baptized. And so we think things are going one direction. And then we read what he does later and we find out things maybe aren't going the direction we thought they were going. And so you see this guy and his response to the gospel is this sort of strange half response. But then he, his life reveals that maybe it, it really wasn't a response at all. And it's confusing, but, but we have a lot in common with Simon. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And there's this these kind of three things that we see going on in this passage with Simon and we see going on with us, it's that we, we share this with Simon. We have a desire to be great. We have a desire for power to make us great. And then we come across the power of God and it's exactly the kind of power we were looking for. And then we try to manipulate God's power for our own purposes of being great. 
And so where do we see that in this passage? First, Simon's desire for greatness. Uh, Verses 9 through 11, Simon's got an obsession to be great. He wants to be a god. It says that he practiced magical arts, which as I alluded to a second ago, we don't know exactly what that means, but we know back in this day, there were spell books that you could purchase. There were all sorts of idols that you could worship and incantations and, and whatnot, but there's some kind of unclean spirit, some kind of demonic force that is Simon is somehow channeling to amaze people. And, and it works. The, it says the whole town is amazed. The entire city from the least to the greatest is very, very influenced and captivated by Simon And he has really accomplished what he set out to do. It says here that not only was he doing these things, but he was telling people that he was great. And that word for great can mean, you know, a couple different nuances there. It can mean that he is a force to be reckoned with or that he is impressive. He's great. And the people are so amazed with him that they even call him the power of God. And that's actually more of a technical term that they really believe, these Samaritan people really believe that he has been sent from God as some sort of superhuman that is, that is uh, maybe requiring of worship. But they are paying very close attention to him, and he is now the most influential man in this city. And this is, this is something that is universal to all of us apart from Christ. Where do I get that? Well, we read it in our Old Testament reading. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to go back to Genesis 3, 1 through 6, and look at a couple things here. The serpent says to our first parents, says to Eve, did God actually say? And he plants this seed of doubt that maybe there's some room here for there to be a different, better God. And maybe you could be that God. Maybe God is really not all that he's cracked up to be. And maybe you can slide in there and be your own God. And the serpent goes on to say to the woman, you will not surely die if you do this thing that God told you not to do. For God knows that when you eat of it, when you eat of the fruit of this tree, your eyes will be opened and what? And you will be like God. And that desire to be like God is the desire that is in our own flesh apart from Jesus captivates our entire lives. We don't really so much want to worship God. We want to be our own God and be worshiped. He goes on to say that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes and that the tree was be desired to make one wise, she took and ate. In other words, when she saw that the tree could give her power. And we see this in our lives. We organize our lives all the time around accumulating power and influence. And we busy ourselves trying to show and tell people that we are somebody great. So how do we do that? Well, in all these different areas of our lives. So first, we accumulate family power. What do I mean by that? Well, maybe we rule our home with an iron fist. Maybe we are rigid in our rules and it has little to do with obedience to God's word and discipling our kids and has a lot more to do about flexing our muscles and being in control. And even in some homes, that rule is enforced with physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. Maybe it's enforced with emotional manipulation, withholding of money, withholding of affection, 
There's all sorts of ways this stuff can fruit out in a home and in a family. Uh, We accumulate physical power. We literally try to become physically powerful. We work out to get stronger. We learn some kind of fighting technique. We carry a gun. Or maybe we we try to become physically powerful in a different way, uh, using seduction. We use our physical beauty to try to get what we want and manipulate other people. Or maybe we try to accumulate financial and social power. We try to get in with the right crowd. We try to join the exclusive club. We have all the status symbols to show people that we're great, the house that we live in, the car that we drive, the clothes that we wear. And this even is true of accumulating religious power. Maybe we become an expert on the things of God. We accumulate all this knowledge to be intellectually intimidating and to have people sit at our feet. Or maybe we are the servant of all, but it's not really coming from a heart that loves God. It's because we want to have that reputation and want to have people hold us in high regard and say that, you know, you're right there under Mother Teresa. And so I respect you and I hold you in high regard. And we love the way that that feels. But sooner or later, we run into this reality that there is a superior power and it is the one true living God of the universe. And so we come up against his power and we see, wow, that's exactly the kind of power that I'm looking for. That could really help me. Uh, We see this in verse 12 and 13. When Philip shows up with the gospel, it changes the entire city. All these people who've been captivated by Simon and all of his amazing tricks I mean, they just throw it down and they start walking toward Philip. And they say, wow, like he is talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about the name of Jesus Christ. And that is resonating with something deep in me. And he's also showing that what he's saying is not just a bunch of garbage, but it's true. Because I'm watching people's lives be transformed. I'm watching people with physical ailments be healed. I'm watching people who have been oppressed and possessed by demons be freed. That is powerful. You know, this guy was doing some some great tricks. We don't know exactly what it is, but whatever it was, it did not compare to Philip and the message that he proclaimed and the power of God at work through his Holy Spirit. But what's interesting is we see written in the text by Luke that not only did all these people believe and they were baptized, but Simon also believed, and he was also baptized. And he followed Philip around like a puppy because he was just so enthused and mesmerized by all these great works of God that he was seeing Philip do. He couldn't get enough of it. So we have to ask ourselves, what exactly did he believe? And what exactly was he baptized into? Because we know as the story progresses that it was not saving faith. He did not have saving faith, but he believed something. What did he believe? He believed this. He believed that God alone was the most powerful being in the whole universe. And that's true. That is really true, but it is not enough. It is entirely possible to be enthralled by the power of God and be in awe of him and still be totally severed from him and be dead in your sin because it has not affected your heart at all. You are still the Lord of your own life. 
and you were still unable to love and worship and respond to, to Jesus from the heart. James talks about this, and, and he says in, in 2.19 in the book of James, you believe that God is one. What's he saying there? Just saying that you believe everything that's true about God. You believe that there is one true living God, that God is one, and you do well. That's good, because that's true, and that's really important to believe that stuff. But that's not enough. Why? Because it says, even the demons believe and they shudder. Like the demons really believe that God is who he says he is and his power really does captivate them and they were in awe of his power and they were afraid of his power. But that's where it stops. And so if that's where it stops for us, then that is not enough. We are not in Christ if that is the only thing that we believe because it has not touched this thing that we have that is so desperately wrong with us. And there's some really good tests for us to determine whether we're loving and worshiping Jesus as Savior and Lord and not just responding to the power of God that we see at work around us. And there's, there are plenty more tests than this, but here's three, here's three for us. One, has a love of God ever gotten you to start doing something that you were not previously doing or gotten you to stop doing something that you were previously doing? Not because it's the right thing to do, not because somebody told you that's how you're supposed to do it, but because your heart was touched and out of the love of God, you've started or stopped doing something specific. The second is when, when you, if you could, if you could record your own prayers, what, which kingdom are you praying for? What percentage of our prayers are we asking God to establish our kingdom with his power versus asking him to establish his kingdom with whatever power he chooses to bestow upon us? And the third is, can you remember the last time that you specifically repented of something? Can you remember the last time that the Holy Spirit of God convicted you of a specific sin in your life, whether that is some action, some thought process, whatever it is? And, and when was that? Was it a week ago? Was it a month ago? Or was it so long ago that you can barely remember, but it's back there somewhere? And Simon doesn't stop there, though, and we don't stop there. We encounter this power, and we're in awe of it. We try to manipulate it for our own purposes. And that's really clear to see here in our passage. Starting in verse 14, the apostles come. They hear that the Samaritans are responding to the word of God, and they're being converted. And so the apostles come down to lay hands and pray for the Samaritans so that they can receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit hasn't fallen on them yet. And this is not what we're talking about today, but it's important enough to just a little side note. That's really strange for us because we, we live in this time where we believe that when someone comes to faith and they are converted, the Holy Spirit is there, is inhabits them. It's not a, a separation of time. So what's happening here? Well, this is not normative. This is the gospel, the kingdom of God for the first time moving outside of the Jews and the people of God to the Samaritans who 
it was really hard for some people to believe that they could be included in the kingdom of God and the people of God. So what's happening is God is making sure that he has one church and not a couple different churches and not disagreement over such a major issue. So he sends the apostles to go and essentially witness to the fact that God is including the Samaritans into his body of people. And so the, the apostles lay hands and pray, but they're not in control of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in control the whole time. And that's just how he works in this passage. So just a little, little side note there. That's, that's not how we believe things work now. But when he does this, when Peter lays hands on people, it says that Simon sees this and his switch is really flipped. He has been following Philip around and he's been watching him do all these amazing things. But this, this is something else because he understands that these people are the leaders of this movement. Philip is a follower, but these are the leaders and they have the ability to give this power to people, he thinks, just by laying on their hands to use at their own discretion for whatever purposes they want. And he says, I really want some of that because this is my ticket to be great again. And so he comes up with this trade and he, he approaches Peter with this deal and says, I will give you wealth if you will give me the power to lay my hands on people for them to receive the Holy Spirit. What does he want there? He wants to be in control again. He wants to be great again. He wants to be influential again. And if he has this power, then he can decide to give it and bestow it or withhold it at his own discretion and maybe make some people pay for it or maybe uh, make the influential people do something for him in exchange for this power. He wants to be great just like he did before. He's just as worldly as he was before but now he has this Christian veneer. He is doing the same thing. He is operating the same way. He is still serving his own kingdom, but it just looks a little different because he's learned a new language. He has totally missed Jesus because of his obsession with his own greatness and his own kingdom. And what does Peter say? Peter says something that's a little PG-13. Peter says, you and your money can go to destruction. But you can fill in that blank with a different word because that's exactly what he said. Why did he say that? He said, this is such wickedness. You are trying to use the Holy Spirit, the power of God to accomplish the same work that you were trusting demons to accomplish. The enemies of God were helping you be great so that you could be worshiped like a God, like Satan tried to convince and did convince our ancestors in the garden to go away from God so that you could be your own God. And now you think you can pay for the Holy Spirit to do that same work. Wow, you are in big trouble. You not only, he says, you have neither lot nor part with us. What he, what he means by that is not only are you not going to be an insider, you are not going to be one of the leaders of this movement who has great influence. You are not even in the movement. You are not even a Christian. You are still severed from God. You are separated from him by your sin because there is great wickedness in your heart. And so what you need to do instead of worrying about how you can get this power for yourself is you need to lay down and you need to beg God to forgive you. You need to repent. You need to ask him to change your heart 
and forgive the intentions of your heart and give you a new heart because you are still stuck in your sin. And I am so convicted of this. I was thinking about this week, getting ready for this sermon. I think there's, there are a lot of ways that I'm convicted by this, but just one example for us this morning is um, my prayer life. I pray so differently when I want something from God or when I need something from God. You know, I can go, go along just fine. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm feeling some kind of pressure and it's like, oh God, you are so awesome and glorious. And I just want to praise your name. And, you know, and oh, by the way, while I'm here, I also really need you to do this thing for me. So see, I'm giving you this worship and you give me this thing that I want because we see here Simon offering money for the Holy Spirit. You know, and you might be tempted at first listen to think that's crazy. I would never think about that. But the reality is we do the same thing. We're just a lot more subtle and sophisticated in the deals that we try to offer God. You know, there's not an apostle standing there in front of us who we think would want to receive our money. So we don't do that. But we still do this same thing. We say, I desperately want X, you know, fill in the blank with whatever it is. And God, you have a superior ability to give me X. And so I'll pay you whatever you want so that you can give me X. And we'll both be in great shape. It's a good deal. And it's like this contract relationship that we try to get into with God. And so you can fill in that blank or that X with whatever you want. There's a lot of things. You know, there are a lot of benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ that are not the main thing, that we can very easily be tempted to worship. Some of those things are community, social capital, purpose, freedom from guilt or shame, happiness, security, peace, comfort. We miss Jesus because we're captivated by how we think he can fulfill our desires. And we're so self-addicted that we cannot even see it happening. It takes the Holy Spirit and oftentimes other people to help us see ourselves and what's really going on in our hearts. And so there's two, two ways in which we know that we're doing this kind of thing, doing the same thing that Simon's doing. The first is we find our desire for one aspect of the gospel, one of those things that we just talked about, that it begins to distort the rest of our life and leads us out of obedience to Christ with an inordinate focus on whatever that one aspect is. So let me, let me tell you what I mean. So if, if for you, if you're lonely and, and the promise of God and the gospel is community and that's what's most appealing for you, then you won't ever branch out from the community that you have. If God's calling you to start a new Bible study or, or move somewhere else to further his kingdom, you're not gonna do it because it's too threatening because you're really serving the fact that God's able to give you some kind of community. If it's peace that you're after, then you're not going to obey God when he calls you to have some kind of um, healthy conflict or healthy confrontation with somebody else because it's so threatening that that person, uh, conflict itself is so threatening that you're not going to do that. If it's security, then you're not going to give sacrificially the way that Jesus calls us to because it's too threatening. And if it's freedom from guilt or shame that you're after, and that's the whole thing, then you're going to drown out all of, all of God's calls to repent and to see yourself for who you are because it's too threatening. 
because you don't want to feel guilty. You don't want to feel shame. So you see what we're talking about with that. And the second thing is we try to obligate God on this contractual basis. We say, okay, you know, we, we, we do this transaction. We say, God, I want this. I think you want this. I'll give you that if you give me this other thing. And the way that we see that we've done that is when things don't go our way and we don't get what we want and our life doesn't work out the way that we had planned, we feel these strong feelings of anger and resentment and injustice and entitlement. And that's what we're really saying underneath that stuff is, this is not fair. I did the stuff for you that you wanted me to do for you. I came to church. I studied the Bible. I prayed. I did these things. And you didn't do this. You're not holding up your end of the bargain. But that's not how God works. And if, if we're in a place where we're saying that kind of stuff, then we are in the same place Simon is, which Peter says, hey, you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. What's he saying? He's saying you're in a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ is not enough. And that means you are heart, your heart is not right with God. And so what, what do we do about this? This is not very encouraging. <laughs> what do we do about this? And what makes, what gives hope to the people of God that separates us from where we saw where, where Simon is in this passage? What makes it different for those of us who are in Christ? It's a world, it's a world apart. It's a world of difference. God sends Philip to proclaim the good news, but thank God he also sends Peter. We need Peters in our lives. We need people who love us and love God enough to come to us and say, you are not in a good place and you need to repent. God is calling you to repent. And it's not this judgment. You, you don't have to fear any condemnation because of the truth of the gospel. Jesus has taken all of that for us. But it's an invitation to Allow the Holy Spirit to take this stuff out of you and replace it with new things that will lead you and I to abundant life. We cannot have abundant life if we are still trying to worship ourselves and build our own kingdom. And God loves us too much to let us do that. He's calling us to worship his son, Jesus. And who is Jesus? Jesus is so different from Simon and so different from us in some really important ways. We are not great, but we really want other people to think we are. We're sort of like the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, but we just want you to be really impressed with us. But Jesus is the great one. He is the only great one. He is the power of God. And he lays his greatness down in humility for his people. We seek power to elevate ourselves over others. Jesus uses his power to elevate us and lay himself down. We set ourselves up as gods. Jesus is the only son of God. And he used his power to unite us to God, to redeem us, to bring us back from our sin, to save us from ourselves, to save us from trying to build our own little kingdoms so that we could be adopted. We could be united with God, with the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead so that that power could dwell in us for eternity not to do our wills, but to transform us completely into the image of God's beautiful son, to do his will. And that 
whether we believe it or not, is where abundant life is found. And God is so loving and so merciful that he is constantly leading us to that life. And he says, all you have to do is believe me. All you have to do is believe me. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. And we beg you to continue and keep your promise to transform us, Lord. Do not leave us as we are, seeking our own little kingdom, but use us to glorify you and to have abundant life in you as we proclaim your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.